What's up, y'all? Aaron from the Ones Ready team. Before we jump into this awesome podcast with Tyler Mace from Guardian Fitness, I want to talk to you a little bit about how you can prepare yourself to get into the pipeline. That's what we're talking about with, with Tyler. That's what his whole project is about. So head on over to ATACLE to get all of your training needs and gear. Everything from replacement straps to tactical watches to full-on packs of things that are made to help prov uh, provide you the skills and the equipment that you need to get through the pipeline. So head on over to attackelite.com. That's A-T-A-C-L-E-T-E.com. Use the code ONESREADY at checkout to get yourself the training gear that you need to be successful in this aspect war world. And oh, by the way, if you need a little boost, a little energy, a little pre-workout, head on over to cardomax.com using the same code ones ready. Check out their energy intensifier, which Trent loves. He's probably drinking five packets of it right now because that's how that dude gets down. His caffeine tolerance is through the roof. But honestly, you only need one of them. They come in small packs that you can throw in a pack, throw in a ruck, throw in your pocket, and then mix them in with your favorite uh, water or whatever other sports drink, to be honest with you. Um, I personally love the, the blue raspberry flavor. It's fire. It's great. Um, use those to, to keep you going. They also have hydration packs. They're hydro support. So check them out, cardomax.com. Use the code ONESREADY at checkout. Now on to this awesome podcast with Tyler Mace and Guardian Fitness. Hope you enjoy. Welcome back, everybody, to the Ones Ready Team Room. It's just me, your boy, Aaron, sitting down with a good friend, Pararescueman, and now uh, owner, operator, coach, mentor, guide of Guardian Fitness. We're going to talk all things, but Tyler, thanks for sitting down with us. How are you doing today? Doing all right, man. Thank you, Aaron, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course, man. Of course. So, man, you know, we crossed paths. We were together at the schoolhouse before. And obviously, you know, the career fields are super small. So we, we'd cross paths and we knew each other before. And, um, you know, so I know a lot of your backstory. But for everybody out there that's kind of wondering, you know, who is Tyler Mace? Can you, can you tell us how it is that you found your way into pararescue? Yeah, man. Uh, actually, in high school, I had a really close family friend. He got blown up in Iraq. Uh, survived but he had a lot of issues. So naturally, man, I was angry. I just wanted to fight. Um, mm -hmm. My dad being army for 22 years, he's like, the army's not for you, dude. You like to think on your own, don't go army. I brought right. him a Marine recruiter. Dude, he kicked him out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he kind of like drug me by the neck to the air force recruiter. And I walk in there and I'm like, Hey, look, I don't want to turn wrenches and I don't want to sit at a desk. What mm -hmm. do you have for me? So she said, turn around, right? You know, there's, it's not science fiction posters that they have up. That guy, yeah, that guy's name is yeah. Ben. We, uh, we went through the pipeline together. So when he, when he became the poster child, cause he's a square jawed, good looking dude. He was in his kit. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're pretty, uh, compelling pictures. Right. So I looked at him and I'm like, Hey, which one's harder? Um, they're like, well, Pararescue is the hardest entry standard. So I went for that. Um, did my pass test, got picked up. And she was like, okay, it's going to be about two years for your next contract. Cool. I have two years to train, whatever. Sure. Uh, this was in August of 2012, right? I get a okay. call in September and she's like, Hey, guy, before you got a DUI, you have a contract in January. So actually, <laughs> uh, I knew oh, no. nothing about pararescue. <laughs> oh and, uh, no. I had three months to train. So, oh wow. What did you, as I could. What did you use to train? Like, you know, so obviously you had the internet and there were some people that were floating around it. So, you know, you start digging into the career field and try to learn, I assume as much as you possibly can. Was there anything that you used prior to getting in? I used, honestly, it was just the special warfare recruiter liaison, his little training guide that he gave you. That was it. It was a nice. two week program specifically tailored to the pass test. And mm -hmm. uh, I think I got my swim down to like eight minutes, my run, like nine fifteen. It was pretty crazy. 
<laughs> yeah. And then you show up to, you know, at that point it was Medina or, well, you show up to basic training first and, you know, basic training, it, it wasn't it, uh, probably the hardest thing that you've ever had to do, but you probably started making those connections and figuring out, you know, you start looking around, you're like, Hey, who else is going to go, you know, try these things. Were you doing any of the, the late night dorm workouts and BMT? Yeah, we were trying. Uh, we actually got in a lot of trouble for them because they didn't want us to do that at all. Um, oh, the wow. only thing that we were allowed to do was ins and outs essentially for the chow hall. So while you were waiting for the chow hall, you could do pull-ups, push-ups, and sit-ups, and that was it. Oh, wow. And to, to see how far that has come, you know, I, I'm obviously an old, irrelevant dude at this point, but like looking back on what I did and then, you know, hearing what you did. And now they have entire flights of aspect war candidates and you're, you're not only encouraged, but expected to do extra PT and have extra mentorship sessions. So it's, it's been really good to see that evolution from where yeah. it was to where it is now. So you show up over to, to the Medina Annex and that first day of Indoc, did you feel prepared? Were you ready to go? No. I was not prepared. <laughs> um, Fantastic. No, absolutely not. Honestly, man, I think not having the information that all these other guys had, I think it worked in my favor. Um, right. I think a lot of these people, they just got in their own head and they would mm -hmm. show up in the morning in their blues and quit before the next day. Um, you don't even know how that day is going to go, my guy. Like, at least exactly. go to an event, you know? Exactly. And when I was going through the events, I was able to just focus on the event at hand and just think, hey, this isn't that hard. A couple mm -hmm. underwaters, full kit, whatever. It's not that hard. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, you'd go back to your dorm room at night and that's when it starts creeping in. Like, man, what do I have to do tomorrow? So I would just, honestly, I just watched movies. I focused on Disney movies. Go to my happy place. <laughs> <laughs> just turn your brain off. There's, there's freedom in that, you know, ignorance is bliss. I don't want to say that you were ignorant, but there is you know, there's a little bit of truth to that where you're not, you don't know everything that's coming down the pipe. You don't have all that information. So you just, you're just seaweed. You just take it as it comes and you're like, all right, event to event, meal to meal. I'm just going to figure this one out and we're going to see if we can't just do this thing. What exactly. was the hardest part of Indoc for you? Ooh, that's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> it was getting set back. So I got set back my first Indoc class. Oh, wow. Um, and then I went through what they called at the time the battle program. Mm -hmm. um, and it was Sergeant Garcia and Hatsadakis who were running it. And yep. it, was, it was brutal. I just thought those two were crazy, right? But I remember going into my second in-dog, like, I'm not going back through battle. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And then, so obviously, you know, spoiler alert, since, you know, you are a pararescue man that's, that's out now doing, doing other great things. Spoiler alert, you made it through in-dog. Um, yep. what was it, what was it like, uh, standing in that room on graduation day? Had, had you made it? Was that it? No, that wasn't it. I knew I had a long pipeline ahead of me, but man, I felt so just elated on top of the world, right. Mm -hmm. Being able to stand tall in this room full of other graduates, like my team, um, it was just an amazing feeling. Yeah. How many, how many folks did you start with? How many did you graduate out of Indoc? So we started with 160 and we graduated with 32. You started with 160. Yeah. That is a, that is a huge, like just imagining, uh, you know, I, I went back, we, we had a like one, 118 or 120 or something. And even with that number, I was like, this is so many people just to try to get to chow, like just to try to get people to breakfast in the morning was this entire military production. It was like yeah. 160 is, is insane. 
Yeah, you had to wake up at four in the morning just for food. Gross, just for food. Yeah, yeah. Every ugh, it was the worst, absolute worst. Um, so we get you through the pipeline. You're, you're going through schools. Did you did you get set back anywhere at any any of the other specific schools before you got to the apprentice course? Yeah, I got set back in paramedic. I ended up breaking my foot somewhere between the uh, Indoc and Army Airborne. Oh wow! Um, so I went through all of the paramedic course with a broken foot, and then I got to clinicals, and they're like, "Hey, you can't pick somebody up, so we're setting you back." <laughs> That's nice. Thanks, guys. You couldn't have told me six months ago that this was a thing. So then I actually had to start paramedic back over from day one. So that extended my pipeline by a full year. Oh, wow. How long did it take you to get through all said and done? All said and done? What do you mean? All said and done. How long did it take? um, Yeah, sorry. Just a month shy of three years. Oh, wow. Okay. What, uh, how, how did you stay motivated during that time? Those long pipelines and waiting for the next school and, and you, obviously, you know, having setbacks as you did, you know, how, how did you stay motivated to, uh, to stay focused on, on task accomplishment? I think we had pretty good examples just by the instructors, right? Um, the fact that we were waiting in Kirtland, we had direct contact with the instructors weekly at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing them be so motivated to teach us is what mm-hmm. motivated me to keep going. Oh, Nice. So there we go. We get to the end of the apprentice course. You're standing on that stage. You get to command, you know, blouse your boots, don your beret. You shout the creed with your boys. What was your first duty assignment? Uh, Tucson, Arizona, the 48th. Nice. And then, so we always ask, you know, you've made it, right? Like you put the beret on, you're good. You're like, man, I'm on top of the world. You're the biggest fish in that small pond and Kirtland Air Force Base. And then you show up and you're once again, back at the bottom of the totem pole out of the 48th. How was, how was that transition for you? It was all right. Uh, I had somebody prep me before we go. I think it might've actually been you pull us aside be like, Hey, you guys, like you have your braids, just know this isn't it. Like you haven't, you haven't quote unquote made it. You still mm-hmm. need to work hard. Right. So that was a good, uh, a mental preparation. And actually as an instructor, I tell my students that, before they graduate, not after. It's like, hey guys, when you put your beret on, you're going to get right. to this unit, and now you are you're considered a liability for your team until you can prove yourself otherwise. Um, yeah, when so, you show up on one of those teams, you were you were just dangerous, uh, just trained enough that you're dangerous and you can hurt somebody. Exactly, because you're not a student. People aren't like holding on to you. You know, there's there's very distinct guardrails your entire pipeline. Like we are not going to let you go so far off to the left or right limits that you're going to hurt yourself. That's what the instruction is. That's why we're so good at producing students and have a very low, you know, all throughout the pipeline, we have a very low incidence of people getting hurt or people, you know, you know, having uh, bad stuff happen. But the second that you get on the team, a lot of that is like, you don't have an instructor over your shoulder all the time. You've got a team sergeant, but that team sergeant expects you to do what you're supposed to do as an individual. Like you are now a singleton essentially. That's, you know, I'm not going to be flying with you one-on-one at night. Like I'm going to expect you to, you know, don't backslide, be a good free fall jumper, be safe, put your, you know, dump your shoot at the appropriate time and make sure you land with the team. And, you know, that's a, that's a scary thing. That's a tough thing. And I'll say it from both ends. It's a scary thing as a team sergeant. It's a scary thing as a guy that's showing up on team and, you know, knowing that you're just dangerous enough to kill yourself or a teammate. And that's tough. And, and Oh, by the way, you're expected again to almost repeat your entire pipeline because now you have to show all these skills one level up, you know, the, the big gripe about the way that we train is that you're, you know, the guys show up to the unit and they're like, I, I just did this in your case. You know, I just did this for three years, man. Like I just did all of these skills. I've been evaluated. And they're like, you were evaluated to like 
this level. Like the rest of the team is here. Like we need to see you perform up here now. The, the, the tasks may be the same, but the expectation is different. Did you, did you feel pressure in that, in that environment? Yeah, I felt some pressure uh, showing up and like going up to this, this guy who I look up to and he's like, Hey, I need to evaluate you. Like you need a mission eval. Like, what the heck is that? <laughs> right. so, uh, what mission? Exactly. Um, but, you know, come to find out that it's not that bad. They only evaluate you to the skill level that you're at, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as you just do what you're trained to do, you'll be okay. Yeah. So, How long was it before you got your first deployment out of there? One year. Nice. So one year from the time that you graduated to the time that you're downrange. Um, you know, in that year, as that, uh, as that deployment was kind of creeping up on you, what were you trying to get yourself ready for? So you've already dealt with adversity from setbacks. You, you've already done some really hard things through, you know, NDOC and not knowing exactly what you're getting into, you know, all the way back to the start of your journey. But as, as that deployment was on the horizon and those calendar dates started getting closer and, and stuff started getting real, what were you worried about most? Uh, honestly, I was thinking about my friend, right? The one who got blown up because our deployment was scheduled to go to the exact same location. So I'm like, Hey, we're going into this location. I know people are getting blown up. I know we're going to be in a situation where we have to save lives and potentially fight. Right. So that's what I'm framing my whole mindset on. And I didn't, at this point I understood like my whole job isn't to kill, but I also understood that if it came down to it, I had to, in order to Mm -hmm. save somebody else. So I had to come to terms with that. Um, yeah. Also and that's, yeah, that's a heavy thing. And, and it's yeah. a heavy thing that you have to guide people through. And, you know, it's, it's a, a weird thing is we get a lot of, a lot of DMS and, you know, from people that don't know any better. So you don't, I don't, you know, judge them for it, I guess, but you know, they'll DM me and they'll be like, listen, I want to go fight. I want to go get, you know, I'm, they'll tell me I want to get into pararescue, but, uh, I, I don't think that it's going to be a good, you know, a good fit for me because there's just not that much combat going on. And we almost always reply, we're like, bro, the only people that say that are people that have never seen combat. Like once you go and once you kind of touch that stone, the, the, the willingness to actively engage in that thing sort of goes down. Like, you know, one of my, one of my team leaders um, always rings in my head. One of my first team sergeants, he was like, you know, the last thing that I want to be in is a firefight. You know why? Cause I've actually been in a firefight and uh, and it's not cool. People get hurt. People die. If people call us, to do our job, it means that there's an American somewhere that's hurt and that's not good. Like you never wish that on some stuff. And it's, it, it's hard to, it's hard to walk that line, you know, cause from, from your experience, you know, I, I don't know if you would say the same, but it's, it's a tough thing to wrap your head around. Like, Hey, yeah, absolutely. If, if I have to get into a firefight and kill somebody, because that's what the mission requires then I'm going to do it, but I don't wish that on anybody. And Oh, by the way, the whole reason we're there is because an American's hurt. Like that's, that's, exactly. a, that's a tough thing to deal with. Yeah. So you step out the door, you go right back to, you know, where you already have some, some negative feelings or negative transfers. What did you learn on that first deployment? (laughs) Uh, The biggest thing, know your mission, right? So this whole time I was prepping to go do what I trained to do for the last four years, right? And that's to be on the ground, save lives, you know, be a PJ. Mm -hmm. Um, But our mission at the time, it was to cover down on the air assets. Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand that. I didn't understand what that truly meant. So there were some situations where, you know, we absolutely could have launched to go on the ground and grab people and pull them back. But we were told that's not our mission. Right. And in all honesty, that destroyed me. 
just the first deployment, right? So I came home from that um, struggling with a sense of purpose because I just trained for four years under the motto that others may live. I thought that was my whole purpose. And then, you know, you deploy, the opportunity arises and you get told no because there is an air asset in the air, right? You have to go get that pilot. You have to go get that ISR. Like, and it makes sense now, but at the time as a brand new guy, I didn't get it. Yeah. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating as a team member. It's frustrating as a team sergeant. It's frustrating as an SEL, you know, fighting those battles to be like, listen, this is what we're here for. Let us go do Mm -hmm. this thing. And to get told, you know, and they'll use flowery terms like we're going to deprioritize you or, you know, you're a, you're a, high demand, low density asset that we can't afford to put out on this other thing. And it, it's frustrating because, you, you know, you, you said it perfectly. You trained your entire life to go save lives and aid the injured and watching that happen um, without, you know, watching a terrible event happen. And you think you can help to be told, no, that's, that's highly frustrating. Uh, it's yeah. a tough thing to get through. When you got back home, uh, you know, back home off, off this first deployment, you're a completely different person. Now you you got out, you got your first pump, you got that first deployment in cool. Now I'm assuming they're putting you in a leadership position where you're starting to train these younger three levels that are in there. So how how did your mindset shift between you know maybe the the frustration of those deployments and you know the the things that you saw when you were deployed? How how did that shift your mindset when you were talking to the young three levels? Expectation management was huge, right? I would uh, I pull them aside, and be like, hey, like this is the job, this is what you trained for. But when you deploy, like know what you're getting into, know what your mission is. And specifically that, like, what is this team going into this country for? Um, and realistically, it turned from looking after myself to looking after them. The spotlight's no longer on me, right? It is in a leadership aspect, but now I need to make sure these guys have the proper skills to go into this country and do the job, job properly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. When did you start getting salty? Cause we all do it. So when, when was the first time that you remember where you looked at these young guys be like, what are you get off your phone? We're going to go train, get away from this computer. We're going out there. So when, the, when did, when did the saltiness start to creep in? Cause like any good NCO, I guarantee that you, you had a little, uh, you felt some type of way about these darn kids. Yeah. Uh, it actually started creeping in on the second deployment. They were complaining about the, uh, the training tempo, right? So when you're on deployment, Historically, you get like one day off, maybe, mm-hmm. right? maybe Sundays, maybe Sunday, right? Yeah. Yep. And every other day you are training, right? So Med Monday, Tactical Tuesday, you know, hold the whole gambit all throughout the week. Um, and when they started complaining about the op tempo on deployment, right? You have to do this um, kind of introspective look on yourself. Like, hey, am I pushing myself too hard? Am I pushing them too hard? Do I need to adjust the schedule? no, these guys aren't where they need to be. Let's push them harder. You know? mm-hmm. And then when they're at that level, then you can start tailoring back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's so, about the time I started getting salty. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Well, it's hard to communicate as well. Like you're, yeah. you're from a very specific, you know, spot, you were on your second deployment, you know, probably element leader, team leaders, you know, area where you're out there leading a team and you know what you could be called to do. And you have the benefit of experience and you have the benefit of getting that knowledge dump from your mentors and during your training cycle and all this other stuff. And it's hard to communicate that to a younger cohort of people that just don't understand. They just don't yeah. get they're, they're like, well, I mean, listen, wh- why, why can I not play video games on Wednesday? But like, well, because Wednesday is when we do ropes and Wednesday is when we have to like you got to 
you got to run the, the one man five times off this tower. Um, where'd you go on that second deployment? That was another issue. We went to Djibouti. Oh, so okay. Beautiful. We're on a, yeah. We're on a fixed wing team, yep. you know, 120 degrees, hundred percent humidity. Everybody's Gross. morale is low. Right. So, yeah. Even, uh, so I distinctly remember training up from Vegas, getting ready to go to DJ. And during the time that we were training up in Vegas, it had something ridiculous, like 14 days in a row in, uh, 110 plus. So it wasn't even just triple digits, but it was like 112, more than 112 every single time. And we're training, we're getting ready to go. We're, we all made the joke about, okay, well, Hey, at least we're getting ready for Africa. At least this is going to be great. And somebody that had been there before was like, oh no, dude, th this is hot, but it's not like Africa hot. And I clowned him. I laughed at him. I was like, what are you talking about? It's 115 degrees. 115 degrees is 115 degrees. I was completely wrong. <laughs> I, I apologized to him when we were in Djibouti. Like, you, you know, we were still on the compound at, at that point. So we were not where the teams reside now, but the uh, chow hall was like a 200 meter walk away out this one gate that we had to walk out and you would sweat through your shirt walking, walking from the, from the section to the chow hall. Like you would get to the chow hall and they had air conditioning. It was pretty good in the chow hall there. And it was, you, you'd be cold because your shirt was full of sweat. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And it like 10 o'clock in the morning, 110 degrees, hundred percent humidity, just brutal, just brutal. Um, but there's a lot of training to be had and that's what supported that high ops tempo. And it's a, another thing is like CSAR. We all know what CSAR stands for. Come sit and relax. If nothing <laughs> is, if nothing is happening, then you're not going. And you know what, like we hit earlier, that's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing. If nothing's happening, if you get called, that's the worst day in somebody else's life, unless it's an ISR asset. If it's an ISR asset, the person flying it in a container somewhere on the States is not really that worried about it. But all things said and done, how did you keep the young three levels sharp? Because I, they're asking for days off They're They don't, you know, maybe understand the mission. How did you communicate your experience to those young three levels to keep them motivated? Honestly, you just pull them aside and talk to them. Um, I'm really big on interpersonal relationships, right? So I pull them aside one-on-one -on -one and just chat with them and be like, Hey man, where's your mind at? What are you focused on? Mm -hmm. What are you doing on these skills? Like, okay, well, this is why I'm focusing on this right now. You mm -hmm. give me five hours a day, man, you can have your afternoon off. That's fine. But show me that you're competent, right? And that really kind of geared them back into where they needed to be. That's awesome. And that's, that's great input. And sometimes just hearing that, you know, I, I there are a million and I say a million because I'm a terrible PJ and that's why I, I've been talked to a one-on-one -on -one like that so many times, but th there's a million conversations in my head where somebody, no kidding, just sat me down and pulled me aside and said, Hey, uh, how do you think you did on that last FMP? I, I don't know. I thought I did pretty good. And you're like, no, you sucked. And here's the 10 reasons why you sucked. And here's why we're focusing on those things. And you, you need that feedback. You need to be able to give that feedback as well as receive it and then action it and move forward. So, you know, good on you for fostering those relationships. Cause in the end, that's, that's what matters. It's the team. Yeah. Um, what you just said there is important to being able to receive the feedback. Another thing we would do um, quite often was a 360. Mm -hmm. We'd sit down, everybody would say their piece and everybody would try and action on the things that they needed to improve. So, yeah. And it's tough. It's a muscle. You have to exercise it. It's, it, it is tough. And I've been, you know, 360, 
is awesome because that meant that means it's supposed to go around in a circle, right? But sometimes you're in the middle of that circle and everybody in the 360 is is like, hey, you you really sucked on this one. And that, that hurts. That hurts the ego. That hurts your sense of self. That hurts your id. That hurts everything that you think you're established. You think that you're a PJ, that you're a special operator and you're, you're good at stuff. Some days you have bad days and you'll hear it from the team and that hurts a lot. Like it takes a lot to to get to a place where you can you can say, they're saying it because they love me. They're saying it because they want this team to do better. They're saying it because we want to be a high performing team. I just got to take this one on the chin, try to be better and move on. So unless you're put in those positions and unless you have a coach, a guide, a mentor that can, can do it in a, a nuanced way, it, people get resistant to it. And uh, those things can be, those things can be bloody both figurative, figuratively and literally at sometimes. So um, you get out of that, that, uh, that second deployment out of DJ and you're ready for your next career step. So where did you go from, from DJ? So uh, we actually have one more deployment out of DJ or okay. sorry. Yeah. Following year, we went back to DJ. We had some teams go down south. Yep. Uh, I was happy to be on that team. Right. Went down south. Had... <laughs> yeah. Was that to Amanda or no Sam? Yeah. Okay. I got it. Yeah. yeah. In Somalia. Um, we had some great opportunities there on the, the rotary wing team, right? We're actually mm -hmm. doing what we signed up to do, which was pretty cool. Um, nice. Had an amazing opportunity to go back up north and plan essentially the mission of a lifetime with uh, some other countries to go get a hostage that was taken the previous year. So that was pretty amazing. Um, and really the best thing I think about this deployment was going down to Kenya. We got to teach partner force nations, how to conduct personal recovery. We had five separate countries there, upwards of about 200 people. And just seeing the light bulbs click and these people who've never actually thought about doing personal recovery was pretty amazing. Yep, my last deployment was to the same area, doing the same mission, a uh, little bit different flavor, obviously, because we had the ST teams. But I'll tell you, you know, just some feedback for you, man. Those, those guys took that to heart and they actually used those skills so the Kenya Somalia border is a is a huge uh, hotbed, right? Because there's constantly people flowing over the border there, and they they do um, border operations. Their their national security strategy is a little bit different in Kenya. So they they essentially just go to the Bonai Forest, and they try to prevent um, these mouth state actors from coming over and getting in Kenya. And I'll, I'll I'll tell you from the ground and from you know intimate knowledge of it, like there's been a a bunch of people that have been saved and I don't, I don't know what the number would be, but there's a bunch of the uh, people that have lived uh, thanks to that instruction and thanks to the groundwork that you laid. And that's a, that's a great part about pararescue that people often don't understand is our interaction with partner force nations. Like we really are trying to teach them those skills to uh, to partner force nations in order to get them to solve their own problems. And there's, there's other objectives to it, of course, because the military has lots of objectives to everything, but, you know, just giving them those life-saving skills is, is uh, commendable. So, man, good, good on you. And those impacts are, are felt throughout the, that entire spot. So, man, good. Yeah. Good job, bud. Um, so third one, third deployment there. And now we're, now we're getting back stateside. So you have to be getting hot for orders. Where, where, where are we looking at going next? Yeah, at this point, uh, my wife was pregnant with our second child. Um, so I decided to volunteer to be an instructor, be home more for the kids, the family. And it was a great move. Yeah. Did you know where you wanted to go? Did you want where, just any instructor gig or did you want to go to a certain spot? I really tried for Texas, actually. Um, 
didn't get it, ended up coming to Kirtland and honestly, it's way better. (laughs) Well, yeah, it is way better. And I'm glad like, uh, you know, during that time, you know, I was, I was an instructor at the schoolhouse. So you and I shared the same spaces for a little bit, you know, you were, you were getting in and I was, I was transferring out. So it wasn't as much as I would have liked, but, um, I always tried to recruit talent down to Kirtland and it was, it was this constant, um, you know, tug of war, this constant tension sort of between San Antonio and Kirtland because people initially they're like, I want to go to San Antonio. I want to see these people directly off the street. I want to be able to, I want to be able to start planting that mind virus in these young people down there. I got to be honest with you, you know, assessment selection and you know, at the time, you know, what we called indoc, it's a wood chipper. Like it's, it's awesome. I heard, you know, one of the, one of the guys, uh, an instructor there that loved being an instructor there. He's like, man, I'm able to open up these people's chests and take a lighter and just start a fire inside of their chest. And I'm able to plant that seed. And I'm like, well, yeah, but also those students are just trying to make it to lunch and you're giving them a pump up speech in like week two of indoc and they're terrified about an afternoon pool session. Like I'm sure that you can make an impact there, but I would always, I would always use that story to say, but what about Kirtland? Because not only do you still get to do PJ stuff, but you get to teach them about tactics, about air operations, about advanced employment, about how it is we really go about mountaineering and, you know, technical rescue and all these other things. And oh, by the way, you get to send them out to your friends that are team leaders on the other team. I think there was a lot of value in Kirtland. That was one of the things that I was not tracking. Like I was not involved to Kirtland. They were like, hey, you're going to go be an instructor. And I was like, okay, tight. Here we go. By the time I left there, I had no idea that I would get the job satisfaction, the motivation. It like it really did recharge my batteries coming out of there because you're able to influence students down in Kirtland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you get to Kirtland, babies, deployments behind you, and you have a new group of students. When you, when you got to, to, uh, to Kirtland... How did you, uh, once you oriented stuff, cause you know, this is a dumb admin thing, but it really takes you about six to eight months to actually become a full fledged instructor. You have to go through basic instructor courses and you have to go through additional follow on stuff and then you have to teach and be evaluated. So it actually takes a little bit before you, before you get out on the, on the trail and start actually instructing. What was your impression of the students that were going through the schoolhouse? Um, and, and what I'm asking is, you know, there's, there's a time when you get back and you look at the students and we all do it. We're like, what are these, what are these people doing? Well, I wasn't this, I wasn't this bad when I was a student, like newsflash. Yes, you were, you 100% were (laughs) 100%. Um, but when you got down there, what was your first impression of the students? My first impression, my team, uh, it was a 13 man team. So I actually Mm -hmm. had a lot of, you know, good connections with a small team and it was phenomenal. Um, so first impression was solid, man. These dudes were squared away. They had a lot of one-on-one instruction because they were so small. Right. Uh, you had a lot we, of time to devote to those cats. Yeah, man. But as we progressed, uh, we started getting larger and larger teams. I think one of the teams had like eight crows and I want to say upwards of like 35 PJ students. Mm-hmm. And it was brutal, man, because they don't get that direct one-on-one instruction. The, the, the instructors at Kirtland, they were critically manned at the time. Um, every single instructor was in charge of their own block. And then they had to pull help from every other block just to get their phase up and running. Mm-hmm. So it was just, it was brutal. Yeah, it's tough. And and 
we've talked about it all the time, but I just want to highlight, you know, this is, is how much effort that you put in. Um, you know, you're there two hours before the students. You're, you don't leave until two hours after the students. You're expected to maintain your own skills, qualifications, certifications. You're expected to maintain your own high level of physical fitness. And oh, by the way, you have this intensive job. I always talk about the air ops instructors. Um, you know, those dudes are out there ripping eight free fall jumps a day. Like they're turning, you know, six to eight jumps and jumping static line and jump master and all these other things. None of that stops. None of that stops because the students are going through like, and by the way, there's always two courses running at any given time. It's not just one course. There's a senior team and a junior team and that's, it's always running concurrently. So there is no break. There's no quarter. It is not, you don't get to go there and take a knee. Uh, the ops tempo alone is, is just immense. Um, but you said it a bunch of times and, and I, I want to kind of like highlight this is, is you value interpersonal relationships. You value helping that one-on-one -on -one student. You value pulling people aside and, and you value giving your experience to a younger generation to kind of help out. So as you're at Kirtland and I'm, I'm sure like, I, I won't speak for you, but I'll, I'll tell my story is I, cause I love making things about me is I, I would get frustrated you know, it, it definitely got to a point where I was like, man, I feel like I'm repeating myself all the time. I feel like these folks aren't listening. Um, I was able to work through that on my own. Um, how, how did you stay away from instructor burnout? How did you stay away from getting that, that frustrating, you know, super salty affect that we all take on? Uh, I actually had a really hard time staying away from it, mainly because of the administrative stuff that we had to do on the back end, right? Like you mentioned, two hours before, two hours after, you're there, you're planning the course, you're writing up paperwork for, you know, these knuckleheads who did something mm -hmm. that they probably shouldn't have done. Um, and that is where the burnout set in. When I was out on the line instructing, I was having a great time. Mm -hmm. But the two hours before and after is what burned me out. Right. And it, it just, it's, it's one of those, it's a war of attrition. And that's the best way to do it is you're just holding on with white knuckles and trying to find as many things that fill your cup when, you know, there's, it's like you're pouring from this big picture, right? But all these other things are poking holes in your cup and you're, you're slowly leaking out. So um, I think at this time you, you start making that transition to where you see a problem, right? You see some cracks in the foundation and you start to think, hey, wait a second, you know, th there's something that's lacking uh, maybe in these students and I can't put my finger on it, but you know, you started thinking about what it is that you wanted to do to help. So Kirtland was your last assignment, uh, as a PJ, was it not? Yeah. Okay. So then you, you get out you make your transition. Um, and then you start thinking, how can I help? And, and in comes guardian fitness. So, um, you know, tell us about kind of like the origins of, of guardian fitness and, you know, most importantly, like, what is it like, what, what, brought it on? What was there an idea? Was there a feeling like what, what made you think about starting guardian fitness? Yeah. So, you know, throughout being an instructor, like you said, I started seeing some cracks in the foundation and when I pull people aside and just really talk to them about what their experience was down in Texas or what their experience is up here. Um, one of the big things that it boiled down to is a lack of direct one-on-one -on -one mentorship. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and they really valued these one-on-one -on -one talks and they would thank me at graduation for these one-on-one -on -one talks. So it's like, man, like what if I could just talk to these dudes before they join the military? Right. Mm -hmm. And as I transitioned out of the military, I started struggling with a loss of purpose again. I felt like I quit, you know, I, you yeah. know, I just lived 10 years under the motto that others may live. And 
now I'm not right. So right. Through the three months of getting out, I went through a really amazing program that helped me find my own sense of purpose again. Like if I had this day one, when I joined all of the issues that I had would have been fine. Right. Everything, right. And right. I might've made it to 20 years in this career. So really that's what guardian fitness does. We help these dudes day one before they even start, try to find their own sense of purpose that they can latch onto and hopefully make it through a 20 year career. Yeah. We had a, you know, chief Cox, who's still the group chief down at a aspect war training wing. And he, he's a longtime personal friend of mine. Like I can't say enough about that dude. He's a, he's a coach. He's a mentor. He's somebody that I look up to. He's somebody that I emulate when we had him on, he talked about, you know, mental armor. You know, we talk about resiliency and we talk about all of these other things. And I think you were the one I, I stole this quote from you, but I, I believe you said that Indoc was the best resiliency course you'd ever been through. Yeah. Um, and I, I, that is, man, that is a great way to put it. Um, but we always talk about it after the fact, you know, if you get, if you get shot, it's too late to put body armor on. You got to put your armor on before you go get into the fight. And the fact that you saw an opportunity to start helping people prior to, man, that's amazing. Um, you know, going, you know, checking you out here on guardianfitness.us. Um, you know, the mission straight up front says, you know, you're, you're there with guardian coaching, uh, to bridge the gap between current and future special warfare operators. That is so important. If, it, if it's, you know, the, the number of people, the number of PJs that know what it's like to get into a firefight, that know what it's like to go into combat, that, that know what it's like to fly into a hot LZ that's laden with IEDs to try to get just one person out to risk your whole team to go do that. That gap is getting wider and wider and wider. And unless people like you engage with these younger folks and get them ready from the very beginning, you know, I distinctly think, uh, I, or I think that we have the distinct possibility of, of fail, uh, failure and, and we have a no fail mission. We all say it all the time. Yeah. Um, so as you started off guardian fitness, uh, and, and again, go check it out at guardianfitness.us and, and we'll, we'll throw it in the, uh, in the notes and stuff down there. So people can kind of orient to what it is. I, your very first values, you know, people over hardware. Did you, did you make the entire project just so that you could talk like individually to people? It feels like that answer is a, is a solid softball. Yes. Because of your, your love of interpersonal communication, but what, what was the going in, um, you know, idea of guardian fitness? It was exactly that. It was just to mentor people one-on-one -on -one direct mentorship, via like hour long meetings on zoom where I can talk about the lessons I've learned and how you can apply it in your daily life. Man, that, that is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, as you started, there's challenges with everything, you know, 90% of entrepreneurs fail, um, you know, on their first attempt. And I'm sure you had like those things that you had to overcome. What's been your biggest challenge so far with getting guardian fitness up and off the, uh, off the ground. Advertisement. <laughs> Advertise. Yeah. Just getting the word out there. Right. Yeah, well, just hey, getting the word out there. We can help. I'm excited to help you on that one because uh, we're very, uh, I'd, I'd say we're mildly popular in a niche community. So um, getting the word out there is definitely something we can do. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, I wanted to have you on and, and have this talk. Um, what are some things that you're looking forward to in the future? Are you working with other organizations? Are you, you know, there's, there's a million things. So if you, if you wanted to tell people about the goodness that Guardian Fitness is doing and then where you want to go, what would you tell them? Uh, so, and like talking about these other organizations, other people that I'm bringing on board, right. I'm actually currently training two mentors right now to start taking that home and just telling their story and start mentoring these people. Um, 
But in addition to that, right, I'm working with a nutritionist. She just came out with her own nutrition course. And I'm blasting that on, you know, Guardian Fitness's Instagram. And for any Guardian Fitness customer that comes through, you guys get a pretty solid discount code to go through her program. And you can learn how to build your own nutrition course or build your own nutrition platform, right? Which is honestly, it's something that we don't do. We go to the nutritionist and we're like, hey, I, I need a plan. And they give right. you this document based off of your body fat percentage. And you're like, well, how did you come to this? They don't take the time to teach you that. And this course does. Um, I'm working with strength and conditioning coaches just to build up these programs that you guys can get at, again, a discounted price through Guardian Fitness. I have a psych doc on board who I'm working on getting monthly seminars for these dudes just to talk about, hey, you may have to kill somebody. Hey, you may have to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so I'm, I'm really trying to build this wholesome product for people looking into getting into any special warfare platform, whether it's, you know, pararescue, combat control, SR or army, Marine, Navy. Yeah. That's what, what I'm looking forward to doing. Yeah. And those things aren't like, they're not exactly the same, right? Like I, I'm not a, you know, I would never say that I'd be a good, you know, green beret. Cause I have no idea what that's like, but I'll tell you what. I know a lot of green berets and we have a lot of the same values. We have a lot of the same wants and desires. And that's, that's a lot of the same people that are working on different teams. If that makes any sense. I love your focus on community, man. I love, I love the fact that you guys want to bring everybody together and get those people in the community as early as possible. Because when you're at assessment selection, like you're only as good as the guy to your left and your right. You know, there've been very few graduates of one. Um, you know, unfortunately we just lost one of the only graduates of, of one, um, just recently in the pararescue community. Um, I love that you're focusing on community and starting to branch out. You were talking about before we got on, you know, you, you dropped Steve Nisbet's name and I just sat down and talked to him for a long time about his career and, and his work with shields and stripes. So I know that you guys are working on a collab and it's coming up here at the end of the month. What, uh, can you kind of talk about what you guys are doing? Yeah, man. Uh, so Guardian Fitness is working on doing a yearly event, right? At the end of March, every year, we're looking at raising money for an awesome nonprofit. So um, I looked in Shields and Stripes. You know, Stephen Nisbet was, was a PJ. He is co-founder of Shields and Stripes. I looked in their mission, everything that they're doing, their testimonials, and they just have an amazing program. So at the end of the month, Guardian Fitness is hosting the Extra Mile. And the whole purpose for the extra mile is to better yourself so that you can better other people, right? So at the end of your workout, run a mile, swim a mile, fin a mile, do whatever you can, do an extra lift, whatever it is to signify that you are bettering yourself or somebody else. At the end of the week, the goal is to dedicate that mile to somebody else, right? It's shields and stripes more specifically. And for every extra mile you went throughout this week, donate $5. Seven days, that's $35 per person. Guardian Fitness alone has 2,000 followers. If every single person did that, we would raise 75000 for them. Man, that's amazing. That, that is so good. And, and if you guys aren't tracking Shields and Stripes, go check them out at shieldsandstripes.org. You know, straight up from their, from their why. They believe that first responders and veterans are the true American heroes. And when they receive a mental injury, they should be provided top-tier rehabilitation programs to get them back on track. Basically, they're running two programs a year. They're bringing in up to eight people um, per course that they're running. It's over, I believe, a week. 
and they are giving them intensive help, not, not just physical, but mental health help, helping them to deal with stressors from the job. And this is first responders and military. So man, their organization is righteous. I, I love Steve. He's a longtime friend. He and I went to the train up for our first deployment together. So, you know, we, we share that, um, all those stories that, that come with it. And I'm so glad that you've, you've partnered up with them and that you guys are focused together to getting it. Um, it's the last week of March is that the 24th through the 31st. Is that what you guys are doing? Yes. Okay. Awesome, man. Tyler, I can't say thank you enough, uh, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Go follow Tyler over at guardian fitness on Instagram. Check him out at guardianfitness.us. You can find everything that you need to on there from how to get with, uh, a hold of Tyler, how to get, uh, entered into the coaching and mentorship program and the, the psych doc, the nutritionist, the strength and conditioning aspect, man, it sounds like it's just full spectrum support from start to finish to get those people, get them that armor that they need early so that they can get to a 20 year career. Is there, is there anything else that people need to know about guardian fitness or how to reach you? No, <laughs> you hit it, man. Crushed it. Yeah. Got it. Well, Tyler, we always end with advice and, and, um, you know, we're, we're always talking to those folks that are thinking about doing something impossible. You know, 90% of the people that try to do this are going to fail when people are like, Oh, should I do this? We, we are very blunt with them. We tell them statistically, you're going to fail. Statistically, you're not going to make this thing. And they're always looking for that one piece of advice to kind of at least get them started. If you had that one second to pull somebody aside, say, Hey, young person, here's what it is. What, what would you tell? You know, uh, physical fitness is great, right? It's a huge aspect of ANS, but the only way to get through a 20-year career is to focus on your mind. Be comfortable with your own thoughts, right, from start to finish. That's, that's it. Damn, crushed it. Clear, concise, to the point. Tyler, man, I appreciate your time, man. Thanks for coming on. It's a, a righteous organization that you got over there at Guardian Fitness. Everybody go follow them on IG. Guardian Fitness is the uh, is the screen name, is the, the handle, and then guardianfitness.us. Uh, so guardianfitness.us over on the web, and that's how you can get to Tyler and all of his projects. So Tyler, can't say thank you enough. Everybody else, check out onesready.com for everything else that you need for getting a, a touch point for all of these awesome organizations and brothers that are doing awesome things. Leave us a like, a review, a comment down below. Thanks for following along with everything that we're doing. We appreciate you. As always, we'll see you next time. Train hard. Thanks. Thanks.